Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the One Revolution Name Tags Chat. For some of you who have visited us, visited with us the whole time, you will remember that Mike Shea was on a long time ago, back in March, no, April, back in April, I believe. Yeah. Mike Shea is, he was part of the US sweep, the very first snowboard event in the Paralympics. So second place with two of his teammates, uh, absolutely amazing. And he's also one of our name tags presenters in Southern California. So he's gone to a bunch of schools there. And we just want to get together with Mike just about, about some of his story and some of these things. So Mike, can we go back a little bit? Like when you were a kid, what was, what was important to you growing up? Uh, boy, when I was a kid, the only thing that was really important to me was uh, living in the moment. And I think that's probably every kid's feeling. Uh, doing what was fun, you know, enjoying outdoors, uh, playing sports uh, quite a bit. So just being really, really active. I was outdoors a lot and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. What did you do for sports? What kind of sports did you play? So growing up mostly, uh, actually the first sport that I was introduced to was football um, and something that I was really passionate about and played it for several years, even though as a small kid and the smallest on the team, I never really did all that great at it. Uh, but it is what a lot of my friends did and it drove me to want to be better at that sport. And so I did it for probably about four years in Pop Warner. And then just when I got to high school, uh, finally decided that I would stop that and uh, pursued baseball for a little while, did wrestling. So I kind of dabbled with a little bit of everything, but came into my own when I found extreme sports. And that for me was racing motocross and skateboarding and, you know, obviously heading up to the mountain and snowboarding. And so those were the things that really kind of gave me a sense of identity. And I really loved doing those kinds of sports. So snowboarding or uh, skateboarding was a big part of it. What kind of skateboarding did you do? Uh, as, as a young uh, kid, it was mostly street. I liked street. And at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was really popular. What is street? Can you d- describe that for us? So street would be like a style of skating or a discipline of skating uh, where you're doing a lot of uh, flatland tricks, rails, uh, kick, you know, uh, board tricks. And at the time, that was what was really in. Uh, whereas now vert skating has been really popular and you're doing a lot of half pipe or bowl skating. Uh, where you're skating a lot of transition and, and, and have a, more of a flow to it. Uh, so that's that's the main difference between the two disciplines in skateboarding. Right. Okay. So when you're doing street stuff, you're just making it up as you're going along. Just totally. whatever's there, you're like, all right, let's hit this and see how it works. Whereas it's I mean, the ramp. And, and were things the same back then? I mean, we have so many skate parks and things like that. It seems like every community practically has a skate park. That's different than it was before, isn't it? Very different, very different. Um, I mean, we would regularly be kicked out of courthouses and malls and libraries for skateboarding, whereas today it's, I feel like it's uh, supported a little bit more because we understand that it's a, a big part of our youth's uh, passions. And so I think we, we've built a lot of really great parks for them locally and uh, statewide. And so to see that, I think it's really, really cool because it wasn't like that when I was a kid. So it's much more supported now. Well, it's almost like you guys were like a gang back then or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> we were the it's like these punks taking over. Yeah. That's right. Destroying the place and all those skateboarders are in the way. And so interesting. So, um, so, so 
Tell me, so what was happening? So you ended up, you had an accident, right? Uh, back when you were 19 or so? That's correct. Yep, 19 years old. 19. So what were, what was it like when you were, what, what were you like? What were you doing at that time? At 19 years old, you know, I think at that age, most people start getting their stuff together and figuring out what they want to do with life. Um, and I just, I wasn't there, honestly. Uh, I was going to a continuation school, um, which was basically a school for credit deficient students uh, because I had been suspended and expelled from my previous high school um, for fighting and for obviously being credit deficient. And I was in a really bad place, uh, battling with some alcoholism, you know, partying was something that I did regularly back then. And uh, it goes back to me um, growing up, always kind of living in the moment, wanting to do everything that's fun and nothing to be responsible. And so I hadn't yet shaped out where I wanted to uh, face, where I wanted to go in life. And I think I was just kind of in this really stagnant place uh, when I was 19. And um, that all really changed for me. How did you end up getting into that place? Because your father is a policeman, right? And, Correct, yep. And, and you'd actually done even like some undercover kind of work, hadn't you? And yeah, so when I was, before I was 21, I worked for uh, the, one of the, I think it was the, forget what the unit was called, but we would go to uh, liquor stores. And uh, since I was under 21, they would accompany me, but they wouldn't know that the, the undercover officer was in the store and I would buy liquor. But since I was underage, I'd show them my ID. And if they actually sold it to me, even knowing that I was underage, then they would have the undercover officer who was there the entire time arrest the person behind the counter. And then they would obviously go through with, uh, with finding the uh, liquor store. And so we did that from time to time. And, was involved so in you were kind of on one side and on the other side, right? So you're. Yeah, I, I was, I was, and I don't think my parents knew the extent of it at that time. And so here I am doing this uh, good deed and helping out society by, by doing work for the police department. While at the same time I was off, you know, drinking and buying alcohol before I was under the age of twenty-one as well. So um, it's pretty funny how that works. But yeah, I was in a, in a weird place at that time. How did, how did you get into it? I mean, because that's that's one of those things. Is it is it a product of of the people you're hanging out with, and or how how do you get into into that sort of situation where you feel like you're partying all the time and not really caring about anything else? I think everybody's different. Um, you certainly have an influence uh, with your environment and the people that you surround yourself with. And I think at that age, I, I didn't really quite understand how how big how much of an impact that had on me. Uh, but also, I, I think I've always been really susceptible to um, addiction issues. I have that type of a personality where if I do something once and I really like uh, the way that it makes me feel, I want to do it over and over again without really understanding the consequences behind that or, or being held accountable for what it is that I'm doing. And so that very quickly kind of spiraled out of control for me where it started off with just partying a few nights a week. And I started at a young age, too. It, I want to say like 14 or 15 years old drinking over at friends houses for parties and stuff um it was a different time back then too where i think that that you know we were out a bit more and doing stuff like that but when i look back on that and i see my my kids now and their age you know my stepson he's, he's 15 you know he's a freshman in high school and i can never picture him doing that um but for me that was you know that was the environment that i was in and um, it really now that i look back on it it's easy to understand how I ended up in such a bad place uh, at such a young age where I wasn't able to cope with my feelings and kind of feel things around me because I was always self-medicating with alcohol at a very young age. And were you able to, were you able to keep this from your parents as well? Did they know what was going on or, 
or were, was there a growing conflict kind of based on that? Uh, I think they didn't know what was going on for uh, at least a few years and they really started seeing that there were some issues um, at around 17 or 18 years old um, when I was defiant at home, not really listening, leaving the house a lot, not coming home at night. Um, and so I think that's when they really started to see that. And then I, I, at some point, you know, I was honest with them. And I think I had to be because I couldn't hide it anymore. It was to the point where I was doing it all the time, uh, coming home that way. Um, and then also uh, using prescription painkillers. So I think that at that point, you know, my parents sort of already knew that I had this, this issue. And they were always the best they could trying to be supportive of that. And you were using prescription painkillers before your accident, or was this after your accident? Occasionally, but most, mostly afterwards. Mostly afterwards. mostly afterwards. And so what happened with the accident? Just because uh, that, that's, I mean, it sort of in some ways seems like it's coming out of this environment as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this, this, this accident that happened to me at the age of 19 um, sort of was a turning point in my life. And, and I look back and I'm really glad that it happened because it set me on a different path. Um, I was out wakeboarding with friends one day, one afternoon, and it was, you know, we'd, we'd something we'd done very often. Uh, we'd go uh, out after school or, you know, in the afternoon to uh, hit the water, and we were on one side of the lake, and we decided to go to the other side of the lake because the water was pretty choppy that day, and we wanted to hit the cove. Um, and I was up sitting on the railing of the boat, and we were headed to the other side. We must have hit a crossroad, which is like a bump in the water. And I just remember the, the boat kind of hopping up. Uh, pretty quickly and I had lost my, my footing and my balance and I went over the side of the boat and uh, as soon as I got into the water I knew instantly that something kind of wasn't right because I had felt um, something touching my neck and around the back of my arm uh, and I suddenly knew at that point that that was actually the ski rope because I could feel the nylon when I went to go grab it and when I knew that it was a ski rope I knew that that rope was still attached to the air boom on the boat because we were just wakeboarding moments before and all this happened within a matter of seconds that I was able to kind of like realize this and go oh no and I, at that point i realized that the, the rope had tightened up because the boat was still moving and began to unravel around my leg and that's when when it just completely severed it uh, below the knee um and and obviously had to be rushed to the hospital yeah, it's like a garrot or whatever you know that like just just slice the the leg right off and you're in the There's, water still though right i mean, in the I mean water you're, still. you're in the water you're minus a foot to a certain extent and and you're in the water. What? And you don't you don't know what's happening, though, do you? I mean, do you know the extent? No, at that point, I really didn't know what had happened. Uh, I just felt pain, sharp pain. Um, I knew that something had happened. I thought maybe I dislocated my ankle because treading water was actually kind of difficult. Um, when I had called up for them, I said, you know, come, you guys got to come get me. I feel like I can't tread water. Something happened. I may have dislocated my ankle. Is what I said. At least that's what I remember saying. And they came around with the boat and I got up onto the swim deck, which is the, the step on the back. And when I pulled my leg out, I realized that it was much more severe than I had thought before. Um, and it was, it was actually uh, only remaining attached to Achilles tendon. Um, so we did the best that we could to try and kind of reattach what was left and grab a towel and wrap it around like a tourniquet. Um, unfortunately, I think that helped save uh, quite a bit of bleeding because we were able to kind of get me stable and back to the dock so that we can have uh, the uh, medical staff look at, look at my leg. Yeah. Cause you must've had just like a gigantic pool of blood oh, surrounding the, the boat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, wow. Wow. What goes through your mind at that point? I mean, is it, is it like, are you in shock? Are you, are you thinking, okay, this is what we need to do. Is there clarity or is it just like panic or how does it work? 
it's a really weird feeling. And I, people ask me this all the time, like, what did I feel in that moment? Did I feel pain? Um, it, shock is a really strange thing. And when it really kicks in to your body, uh, it completely takes over. And I remember parts of that that were very vivid and other parts that were sort of dreamy. Um, but I don't remember any pain whatsoever, um, which is really strange to me. Um, I remember looking at it and I remember seeing visually what had happened. And I think that that scared me more than anything because I don't remember it going, wow, ouch, it hurts. I remember going, oh my gosh, this is bad. You know what I mean? Like, am I going to survive this? Uh, what are, am I going to lose my leg? These are all the thoughts that I had going through my head in that moment. And I remember getting to the dock and you see the look in other people's eyes when they see what's going on. And when one of the lifeguards walked up to me and I pulled the towel off and I saw it and their eyes got really big you know, that strikes fear into the person that has this going on for them. And I remember just screaming at the top of my lungs and I laid back in the dock and they were like, you've got to relax, you've got to relax. And it wasn't until they had given me medication, you know, I'd gotten, I had gotten into the helicopter. I began to kind of relax and go, okay, you know, what's going on here? You know, what's going to happen moving forward? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the weird thing because it's almost out of body, isn't it? Where it's like you're looking at this thing that had been connected your whole life and suddenly it's not connected and you go, what? I mean, you just can't comprehend it. It's just you, you, your, your mind is going, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of this. And so they flew you, they flew you to the hospital and, and did surgery and all that stuff. And I'm sure as you're going, you're thinking, okay, can they connect my leg? Can I get my leg back? Was that, was that the thought for you? You know, that was the whole time exactly what I was thinking, because I think that anybody's fear when something like that happens. And that was immediately what came to mind. I don't know why it came to mind, but I think just based on what I saw, I knew that it wasn't going to be a very, very easy road, if, even if they did want to keep my leg. And I would say, going in the hospital, am I going to lose it? Am I going to lose my leg? Am I going to lose my leg? And the doctors would always say, you know, well, we've got to look at it. We're going to have a surgeon, you know, protocol. We're not going to tell you, of course, you're going to lose your leg. But I knew right then and there that um, based on what I saw, it wasn't pretty. And then I probably was going to lose my leg. And so I sort of had that mentality and I was mentally preparing myself going into surgery that that was going to be a very good possibility. And even some of the doctors who were somewhat optimistic that they may be able to save it. I think I, I always knew inside that that wasn't going to be the case. Because it's, it's also, it's what you've always known though too, right? And the thing is, it's, it's like, well, I came in with my legs. I want to leave with my legs. I don't, you know, you're not saying, oh, okay, well, we'll figure it out. And it's, you probably didn't, did you know anybody who was an amputee prior to becoming an amputee yourself? Not a single person. And it's interesting how when things like that happen, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, I know that I'd probably seen a lot of people, but it didn't really register with me. I hadn't really met anybody. I didn't know what, what, what things were capable of someone who was an amputee, uh, what prosthetics were out there. And so yeah, there's all this unknown and it's a tremendous amount of anxiety just trying to figure out what would happen moving forward when you don't know what, what the outcome would be. Well, and you probably had to think like, if I lose my leg, then my life as I know it is over. Yep. 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 That's, I think, everyone's uh, initial fear. And it certainly was for me. Um, it may have been short lived uh, because I feel like it did have a, a somewhat of a positive outlook afterwards. And I don't know if, if why that was. And maybe it was the people surrounding me that kind of helped uplift me a little bit. But initially, absolutely, that was my thought. You know, what, what, what am I going to do? You know, like everything I've ever known about myself, my identity of, of uh, 
you know, being outdoors and competing and um, being active, what am I going to do without that? Right. That's the biggest worry. Right. And didn't you, you had, you had a therapist who was really helpful, right? Didn't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. At, at, at that time I did. Absolutely. How did, how did that end up working? Cause I mean, I imagine you're, you're in the hospital for a little bit, you have the surgery and then they start getting you up. What was that first day getting up? Like, like we're going to have to teach you how to walk again and everything's got to be sore and extremely sore and you know you, you don't even get up and walk right away i mean i want to say i was in the hospital for a couple of days came home but you're you're in a cast to uh, help with the infection and the swelling and it goes down for over a period of a couple of weeks and so i was very anxious to want to try to get up and walk again um because i was very curious you know what, what what's going to be possible and i think my first uh, therapy appointment my pt appointment i went and they put me on those bars and uh, I had my new leg on and I took one step and it was exhausting to take one step. And I knew at that point it was gonna be a really long road and it wasn't gonna be like I had thought, it wasn't gonna be able to just get up and go walking once I got my prosthetic. It was a tremendous amount of pain, discomfort, uh, learning how to kind of balance all over again, learning how to rely on, on something that's not yours, uh, a piece of equipment. And so there was a lot, a lot there that uh, I didn't quite know was gonna happen. Well, because because your body's in shock too, right? I mean, your body has has completely changed, and so you've got all this swelling. You've got the surgery. You've got things that have to heal. You've got a stump that that wasn't designed to to be bearing weight necessarily, right? And it's not like the heel of your foot. Like you look at your heel, that that skin is different than the soft skin that you'll have, and and the potential scars that you have that then are fitting into a prosthetic. How long did it take to get to the point where you could actually take a few steps or where you could even walk independently too? I would say it probably took me about a month and a half to where I was able to start taking some steps um, by myself without any assistance. Um, yeah, about a month and a half. But then, you know, things pretty quickly, I think, after that um, took off you're, you're given this small glimpse of hope you know that you can kind of have some normalcy again and once I started walking I started walking a little bit faster and you know got gotten fitted for new prosthetics and then it was okay when can I get back on the slopes and that was a big big thing for me is I wanted to be back to doing what I've done before and you did that slightly prematurely oh yeah as absolutely. I recall. so yeah. how did that work you went back out on the slope because you'd been a skateboarder Mm -hmm. And then snowboarding, you started snowboarding about five years before your accident or so? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. And um, so was, did snowboarding become a, was it a love of yours before, before your accident? Yeah, always had been. Every winter it would come around. That would be my primary focus. And uh, that was something that I'd love to do. Even though I lived probably about 50 or 60 miles from the nearest ski resort, I would literally spend four days a week up there. And it was such a big passion of mine that I was willing to make that drive and um, so when I lost my leg, that was the, one of the first things that I wanted to get back to doing. It wasn't wakeboarding. It wasn't, you know, skateboarding as much as it was snowboarding. That was, that was my primary focus. And so against doctor's orders, um, you know, they wanted me to wait until I was, you know, completely healed. I still had sutures or uh, I don't even know if they were sutures or staples at the time, but they hadn't even come out yet. And so uh, I was at that time walking okay. And I was able to kind of get around. So I figured if I can walk, I can balance on a snowboard. Uh, but I don't think I really took into account how much impact there is on that, even with just a, a slope that's slightly uh, not groomed. So um, it was a rough first time for sure. 
Okay. Rough first time. What what do you mean? What happened? So so you get off the lift the first time because you probably didn't like try to figure out how you were getting around at the bottom. You probably went up the lift to Straight start up. off with, right? Straight to the top. <laughs> and it. you get off the lift and what happens then? I got off the lift. I strapped in okay. I was able to kind of get up. Um, and as soon as I, I pushed myself up, you know, in snowboarding, you, you put most of your weight on your front foot to apply pressure to make the turn. Um, and as I did that, my back foot sort of just wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. And it was like having an uncontrollable rudder there. And it just continued to make this turn. And I, would, I just could not control it. Whereas I've been snowboarding for years prior to it. Was so, it was so foreign to me to have that feeling. And I remember catching a heel side edge and the prosthetic leg kind of popping out of the socket because it, when you're still swollen, there's not a very good fit there. And so I ripped that out of the socket. And um, yeah, just face planted several times that day. Didn't have any success at all. Um, and, and was pretty, pretty discouraged, I think, by the whole situation afterwards. But uh, so the fit that you're talking about with the prosthetic is based on suction, right? I mean, it fits so tightly and you're able to get suction that keeps you, keeps you attached to the prosthetic leg, right? Correct. Yeah. People have different methods of attaching the prosthetic, but the majority these days, especially the common thing is through a, a vacuum seal or a suction. And so um, you get that by rolling a, like a silicone liner over the top of your, over your leg. And the inside of that is like a, a airtight cup. Um, and so you, you, in most cases, I mean, you can pick me upside down completely and, and shake me on whole body weight and the leg wouldn't come off. So it's really, really good. But after surgery, you know, your fit isn't exactly great yet. And so you get some air in there and that's all it takes. And uh, a lot of leg falling off in the first couple of months of, uh, of getting back up. Yeah. So that, that has to be a spectacle. I mean, you fall and your leg falls off as well. And so what's going on with the people on the trail? They're like, oh my, this guy just lost his leg. No, 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 I lost my leg a while ago. It's not a big deal. (laughs) It brings a lot of attention for sure, for sure. And I think at that time, I used that as a way, humor of a way to kind of help me heal, Um, kind of laughing about the situation and making light of it, Um, you know, and seeing the look on people's faces cracked me up while they were still a bit worried about what was going on and why my leg had just fallen off on a ski slope and with pants over that you can't really see it just looks like I just snapped my leg in half um but uh those are the moments that I remember with friends kind of laughing the most and understanding that this was this new normal that I was going to get used to when I have to get used to that you had to figure it out what was that emotional part like I mean you you went you know it took you a month and a half to learn to walk which is which is a pretty long time, really. So, what were you what were you going through emotionally as you're thinking about this, and how do you how do you have the resolve, the strength to start each day and and try to try to push it forward? Well, what I was going through mentally at that time was a lot of uh, pushing away of any feelings that I may have had in regards to the loss of a limb, um, any negative associations that I had. Uh, any feelings of self-worth or anything like that. I sort of just pushed all that away. And at the time was like positive, positive, positive. You know, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to show everybody how strong I am. And while it worked for a short period of time, that's not really sustainable. And I started to notice um, as time went on that it began to manifest its way, it, it, itself in the way of prescription painkiller abuse. And I was getting 
that at a, a very high dose already from my surgeon based just based on the fact that I lost a limb and it was painful in the beginning. Uh, but then was able to kind of start taking advantage of that. And a lot of the issues that I was having internally, just sort of putting it off on substance abuse and self-medicating because of that. And so that did more damage to me emotionally and mentally than the physical damage did initially, because that was long lasting for me. And I remember being on high doses of oxycodone and um, eventually getting to the point where I built up a tolerance. I wasn't getting enough medication from my doctor to the point where I was then having to go get it on the street. Um, and it became this new, became this new person who I didn't know I was existed before I was um, lying to my parents and stealing to get what I wanted. And, you know, uh, just not being the person that I had always been before because it had changed my life dramatically and, and, I, and nothing else mattered. It, what mattered to me was just getting a fix to feel normal. And um, that's when I realized that things had gone downhill for me. And they were giving you the medication for the physical part because obviously there was physical trauma, but it was really more the mental, emotional that you were medicating. And, and so you were just doing it, you were getting whatever you were getting from your doctor, filling that prescription because they're, you know, they're, they're, pretty, they're, they're pretty vigilant in terms of figuring out, okay, you get X amount and that's as much as you get, but then you needed more. So you're buying it on the street as opposed to going to like other doctors and getting prescriptions filled by other doctors. You had to get creative about it, I'd imagine. Yep. And a matter of fact, I did both. Doctor hopping was a big part of it too. Um, you'll hear a lot of people who do prescription painkiller abuse, they, they'll do doctor hopping and go from one to the next so that it doesn't look like there's an issue. And when your doctor sees that you're obviously abusing the medication, you go to another doctor. And now we've gotten to the point in society where I think we're recognizing that, that this is a, an epidemic in itself. So we're being, I think, a bit more cautious with uh, doctors and you're seeing them write triplicates and uh, communicating with other doctors to make sure that that's not happening. But back then it wasn't as big of an issue. And so I would do the doctor hopping. And then if I still wasn't getting enough because I was taking quite a bit in, in one day, uh, that's when I would go out onto the street and find somebody that would be able to supply me there. And that became my normal. And were you, were you lucid? Were you cognizant of what was going on around you or, or were you sort of high in a way that you, that you were not really functioning? Well, that's the thing with, with opiate abuse. Um, I mean, there, there are some people who have that sort of euphoric feeling. Uh, for me, I was very functional. I, I could do everything that I was able to do. It gives me a bit more energy and motivation. And so I was always just like, I was go, 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 go all the time. And that's part of the reason why people who uh, are susceptible to opiate abuse like that, because the, that, that drug makes them feel that way. And so I don't think that I ever had this, um, you would never be able to tell that I was on it. Um, I always, always sort of just felt more productive while taking it. And I was able to push away all these other feelings that were coming at me at hundred miles an hour. And, just, and so, so that's not just you looking back on it going, no, you'd never be able to, 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 to notice that I was on it. Whereas other people <laughs> around you are like, oh no, no, we knew when he was. <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably hundred percent right. That is, so when, so how did this come to a head? with the addiction what happened um well as i said you know i think a lot of my habits were normal i'm sorry the way I, my i acted was normal but a lot of my habits were abnormal and so people began to realize that there was an issue when i no longer had money for anything that anytime that i would go anywhere i'd get into a fight or piss somebody off or um you know i became a, obviously 
noticeable because I was taking pills all day long. Um, and I was, you know, lying to my parents and they, they knew that I wasn't myself. And so people start seeing these things around you and they realize that there's an issue. And at that time, I didn't realize that there was yet an issue. Um, and so when you have to hear it from other people, denial is that first thing as an addict. It's like you can't get past that until you really realize that you are powerless over your addiction. And it took a really long time for me to see that. Um, I started going to meetings. Um, I was in and out of uh, rehab facilities. Uh, starting with the first one that I went to was a court order facility. And when I went to the court order facility, I realized once I'd gotten in there that I was with other people who didn't necessarily thought, think that they also had an issue, but that because whatever trouble they had gotten into, they were supposed to be there and they had to do their time before they could move forward. And so I sort of, when I was in there, I made new friends with other people who were still addicts and didn't want to get clean. And there wasn't that like-minded mentality of somebody who wanted to overcome addiction. And I came out even worse than I was before, finding new ways to get medication. Um, so it was just this really weird cycle um, where I knew what was going on, but I couldn't couldn't stop it. Or I couldn't bring myself to try and face it head on. And I remember one afternoon where not only was I then taking uh, um, painkillers, I was also drinking with it. And that, that when I started doing that, that's when I started getting the relief. What was the second thing you said? You were taking painkillers? And, and drinking at the same time. And drinking at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that, that's when things kind of went south really quick in a matter of a couple of months. Um, because then the, now I'm just all the time just off the wall. And so I came home like that one time. And I remember I, I, I told my mom, I said, this is it. Like, I can't, I feel like I've got no self-worth anymore. Like, I'm, I don't know what happened to me. I'm not, I'm not myself. And she said, you know, we're here for you 100%. Let's go right now. We'll check you in. Like, let's go. And I think at the time I was like, well, can we go tomorrow or can we go next week? And I, that every, everyone says that at first because it doesn't you know, fit in my schedule. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, what did I have to do the next day anyways? Um, but I, I, I said, let's go. And uh, my brother took me and we went to a, a much better facility where there was a lot more treatment. And um, When I went there, I think I got really the education on what I had been going through for so many years. And had the tools necessary in order for me to move forward and live a more productive lifestyle and understand that being an addict is a part of who I am. It's in my DNA and there are ways that I can move forward with life in a productive way without having to have this confront me every single day. So meetings, recovery, all that. And, and it's a, it's a daily, it's a daily maintenance, right? To, to, to stay sober, to stay clean. Every single day. And one of the mottos is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is one day at a time. Um, and when you look too far down the road, and it's really tough to see where you might be in terms of goals. But if you just do things one day at a time, you know, that's the best way to, to move forward. And, and for me, that was, that was the key. That was the ticket right there. And here I am. I don't even know. I've lost count now more than eight years um, clean and sober. And um, even from time to time now, I still have to remind myself how, how that's an important part of my life. And I need to be really careful. It's a huge part of your life, right? Exactly. And the thing is that the looking at that too, you're not alone, right? I mean, you think that, you know, you said you're in and out of rehab places, but that's true for a lot of people. I mean, addiction is so hard to break and, and it takes such a, such a commitment to be clean and sober every day, which is really funny too, is if you think about it, because in the beginning of this conversation, you said that you were a person who just lived in the moment and you have to live in the moment now, but in a healthier 
moment where, where it's like, yeah, you've got you've to stay here and, and be part of that moment and not let yourself backslide into something that could be, could be more difficult. So after the rehab, is, what, what was life like at that point? Is it, was it that you had to deal with the addiction, uh, you know, the recovery from the, the addiction and the recovery from your leg at the same time? You're 100% right. It was both of those hit me at once because, mind you, I'd gone years without dealing with the emotions of losing that limb. And now all of a sudden that I'm clean and sober, I'm having to deal with those feelings. And that was a lot for me to deal with that while at the same time dealing with um, getting clean and sober. Because when you get clean and sober, you're going through a tremendous amount of withdrawal from the opiate abuse that I had for so many years. And so I would have cold sweats. And I would have days where I was fatigued for months afterwards. And it just felt like I wanted to crawl out of my skin. Like it was just this eerie feeling. Um, and I, and that, that in itself, just that was enough for me to say, I will never go back there again. Because the, like the feelings that I have now, it's, it was worse for me to go through my addiction than it was for me to go through my amputation. When I look and compare those two, the amount of pain uh, emotionally, physically, mentally, uh, addiction was a hundredfold more difficult than a, uh, than the amputation itself. Well, because you're also, you're overriding your personal chemical system, right? The, the things that are telling you, Hey, Mike, that was a great thing. And you get a, you know, a rush of endorphins or whatever. And you're like, wow, all right. Okay, cool. You know, and, and you feel like you're alive, but you suppress a lot of that with the opioid part. And, and so what did you do? What were the, what were the next steps? What did you, you know, when you came out, what, did you say, okay, like, this is what I want to do? Did you have a plan or how did it work? Yeah, we worked on a plan in the treatment facility. And that was one of the biggest things for me coming out was, uh, you know, going through the steps of Alcohol Anonymous and, uh, you know, making amends with all the people that I had hurt during that time. And that was a big part of it for me because there's a lot of people that I had broken trust with and rebuilding that trust with those people. And um, not just for them, but for myself, because that's a, you know, that, that was big for me is, is, you know, I was, I never wanted to be that person, never saw myself as that person. And so for me to go back and make amends with those people, it meant a lot to me. And then when you do that, you start to realize that you have a little bit more self-confidence in yourself and you can accomplish these things. And I started to realize that I had a bit more drive. And then I started to notice that I was changing a lot of those things about myself, but I wasn't really changing my environment. And I would look around me and see that I was still hanging around with some of the same people that I was involved with when I was going out on the street to get, um, to get more drugs or people I was drinking with and partying with. And I said to myself, like, what am I doing? Do I really want to fall back into the same process after I just worked so hard to get out of it? And I had to start kind of cutting people out of my life, even though these people meant a lot to me. I had to ask myself, are they a healthy part of my life or are they not? And were they doing anything to help me move forward? And they really weren't. So I had to cut those ties and create this safe environment for myself so that I can then live every day and know that at the end of the day that I was going to be clean and sober. And if that was, that was what I had accomplished that day, that was enough for me. And after a while, rebuilding that trust, uh, changing my environment, setting new goals, and then bringing back into my life the things I had done when I was a child, which was competition and sport um, and physical activity. It was like that was just my recipe for getting back to who I was before. And um, I think the combination of those three things really is what led to my drive to want to compete as a Paralympian again, or 
Did, did being healthy and like, you know, being, being more proactive within your life and being healthy, did that, did that get harder when things got a little bit better? I mean, you're leaving, you're leaving rehab, you're dealing with losing your leg. You're like, okay, this, this is like life and death basically at some, on some level. So it's pretty critical. And then as things got a little bit better, was it harder to, to maintain that focus about being healthy or, or were you able to do it? And if you were, how were you able to do it? Uh, that's a good question. I think as I got more into uh, living a healthy lifestyle and um, particularly even with, even with my diet and food and my surroundings, I became easier because I saw the benefits that that had in how I felt. And I felt so much better than I did even when I thought that I felt good when I was taking drugs. So in my mind, it was like, wow, I feel great right now. I, mean, I want to continue doing this. And so I continued eating healthy, exercising, and saw the benefit that I had with my life. And I think it got easier as time went on. You said at one point before that, that when you were competing, you journaled a lot. I did. Have you, did you do that prior to competing as well? Or is that something that you picked up when you were competing? That was something fairly new. Um, it was one of our coaches, and he had a really big philosophy about uh, jotting down a lot of the things that you did that day because it was a good way to take a mental note. Um, he had a, a, a really big impact on me and I think that part of my life. And so I did a lot of journaling and it was a way for me to really process things that I was going through in both a negative and a positive way. And sometimes when you do that and then you look back on those things, it really gives you perspective. And so that was a big part of my recovery as well. Uh, getting onto the Paralympic team and then journaling and then being around these like-minded individuals who had the same goals that I had and were living healthy lifestyles. It was just, that was addicting, addicting in itself to be around those kinds of people. Um, and I think that's truly what changed my life. So you're talking about the Paralympic team, but did you even know about the Paralympics? No, I, I mean, at that time, if you're talking right after getting clean and sober, I, I had not known. No idea. How did that happen? How did you how did you get involved with that group or figure out? Did you go to a program? How how do you, how do you do this? How does it work? So for years afterwards, uh, I got back to like doing the sports that I had loved with as an amputee, but didn't really know that there was this thing called the Paralympics. I didn't know that there were people who can who were competitive in the sport of snowboarding uh, who were also amputees. And I went on a Madonna uh, music video shoot. <laughs> um, back in like 2008, 2007, uh, because they needed amputees to play a part of a soldier who had, had his legs blown off. And it was an extra cast who they called me and they said, we need you, would you be interested in doing it? I said, sure, why not? And I did it and I met Amy Purdy, uh, who um, is now the owner of Adaptive Action Sports and also a teammate of mine at Paralympian and Paralympic Snowboard. And also um, Dancing with the Stars, And right? also Dancing with the Stars. Um, but at that time she wasn't yet somebody who had done it too competitively. She had talked about it, but she had this conversation with me about wanting to start a program to help other adaptive athletes and get more involved in uh, the community and helping people who are amputees who wanted to get back to snowboarding. And, uh, we kind of talked about it a little bit and then I, I'd fallen out of touch with her for about a year or two. And then I got an email, uh, from her organization, Adaptive Action Sports, asking if I was interested in going up to Lake Tahoe to be a part of this uh, snowboard camp. And it was just a really low-key camp with a bunch of other athletes who had come from, I think, all over the state, parts of Utah and Colorado. And we just all got together and we snowboarded and we did a USASA, which is a local regional 
quarter cross race. And all these people were below knee amputees, above knee amputees, some men, some women. And I spent the weekend with them and uh, we just had a really good time. Uh, we ate meals together, we cooked meals and went snowboarding, rode the backcountry. It wasn't anything that was like really organized or really like serious, but it, it was all of a sudden I saw that there was something here and I really enjoyed the way that I felt when I was around those people and um, decided that I wanted to continue with that. And obviously Amy and her organization very quickly moved forward and um, that next uh, next spring there was a USASA nationals race it was a sanctioned race uh, for um, adaptive athletes and they were a big part in helping that move forward and so they invited me out to that and competed and that was really one of the first things that I did that kind of set me forth on this path to wanting to be a Paralympic athlete. Well it was also it was kind of like when you got peers right as well I mean you hadn't had peers like anybody to compare stories to like hey how do you how do you fit your socket or how do you do this or or that because you don't know it otherwise right absolutely and that was huge i mean because you go all those years without being able to speak with somebody else who knows what you what you've gone through or what you're going through and then all of a sudden you have all these people who have the same stories that you had and they do things the same way that you have and you know they hop to the bathroom in the middle of the night like you hop to the bathroom and at midnight when you wake up and there's people hopping all over the house you go this is really weird but like it's so relatable because that's they're like me you know like these are my people so you felt this immediate connection with that and um like you said this this everyone just has this uh, same goal in mind that i think they, they want to help raise awareness while also uh, i think being better themselves and competing and being able to do that as a sport it just it felt good it felt good to me there was also a fair amount of responsibility, right, for your sport. You guys were not in the Paralympics when you first started doing this, right? You didn't get into the Paralympics until 2014, until Sochi. So when when was this camp that you went to? This was in 2009, I believe. And then the first nationals race was in 2010, the spring of 2010. Um, and then from that point forward, USASA, which is a, basically an able-bodied uh, organization all around the country that does uh, organized races for ski racers and for uh, snow. I'm sorry, that's I think it's just snowboarders. Um, they sort of we latched onto them and they helped us out with events. And from that point forward, we really realized that we wanted to have the end goal of competing in the Paralympic Games because, as you know, for skiing that was that's like the premier being in the Paralympic Games for downhill skiing, GS, whatever it may be. That's the premier um, top level of your sport. And we sort of wanted that same thing for our sport because we saw that there's a tremendous amount of interest. There were a lot of people from all over, not just our country, but all over the world that wanted that as well. And so we started organizing with uh, local governing bodies and USASA was the first, the World Snowboard Federation was the second. We had our first World Cups overseas in um, France and the athletes and organizations involved, we all sort of had this key role in making sure that we helped develop the sport. And we all were sort of, um, uh, role models within that to kind of help the sport grow and eventually we got to the point where we gained the recognition from the International Paralympic Committee who's the governing body for the Paralympics itself um, and they said look we see that there's a lot of interest in that we want to help you guys out and we want to put you guys in the Paralympics and so at that point we realized that a lot of our hard work and dedication over the years to get this into a sport was successful and that was another part for me as I felt like I'd accomplished something and been a part of something much bigger than just me so that was a, a really special moment. 
Well, it was and, and a fair amount of ownership as well, just to just to feel like you you guys were part of something, you created something that now is much bigger than you. But that that hadn't necessarily been your plan, right? You got into you got into woodworking, and were basically you were going to, uh, you know, that was going to be your career, right? And yep. how did how did that happen? How did how did how did you get into woodworking? How did you know? And what why woodworking? So yeah, my I know my story is kind of all over the place. But prior to me competing, I, I was actually been involved in, in woodworking. Uh, and one afternoon, I made a doghouse for my dog, a little puppy at the time, and I was really excited about it. I went to Home Depot, grabbed all the tools that I could get, and built him like this really cool doghouse. And sort of just fell in love with the fact that I'd created this thing out of uh, just pure wood. And uh, just like any woodworker who falls in love with the craft, I sort of just went, you know, like, I gotta be doing more of this. And I started to kind of buy new tools and tinker around in my shop and build things for family and friends. And uh, started with little things like uh, jewelry boxes and cutting boards. And uh, it slowly turned from that into a little bit of a hobby and then a profession kind of within a couple of months. And, you know, all it takes is a couple of people that want something from you. And then they tell somebody else and then they want something from you. And next thing you know, you have, you have this need and this business that you have for people that want. Uh, custom items from you and so I had been doing that at the time when I had gotten a phone call from Amy Purdy uh, to go you know do this snowboarding camp and so I hadn't yet really decided that snowboarding was my thing because I, I really wanted to focus on my business at that time but uh, I made the decision at some point that I really wanted to pursue this this passion of mine which was to chase my dream of being an athlete full-time and I uh, had to sacrifice my, my woodworking business for that. And so I sold everything that I had, which I built up over a couple of years um, at a garage sale. And that funded my move out to Colorado to start my training for, for the games. Now, now, with the woodworking as well, I mean, you, you, had to, you had to persevere there too, right? Because you built the doghouse and your dog wouldn't even use the house that you built for him. Is that true? <laughs> That's correct. I spent probably, gosh, like three or four days on the, on the doghouse and uh, put treats in there, everything you can think of, the dog didn't want to use it. So, yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, you, you do things expecting for things to be one way, and uh, it certainly doesn't always happen now. That's the doghouse collected dust for months. So you went out there, you went out to Colorado, and you started and you started training. And, and you, knew, you knew at that point, so that was like 2012? that you went out training in, in Colorado? Yes, 2012, 2013. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, and so you knew that at that point that you were really, you were putting the time in for for Sochi because the snowboarding had already been in. And you did, did you do bank slalom? It was just bank slalom at, uh, at Sochi? Both. Border, border cross was the original um, in Sochi. And that was a, it was a timed event. Um, so it wasn't uh, uh, like four man or, or duels, but it was a, a timed event. So it was a bit of a hybrid between bank slalom and and uh, right and and border cross which border cross is kind of like kind of like motocross but just on snowboards exactly. and with gravity fed and whoop-de-doos and bank turns and jumps and all that stuff and everything so then you made it to sochi did you guys know going in that you had a chance to to sweep the whole thing you as the u.s team yeah, I mean, we had a pretty good idea because that season, during World Cup season, which is the races that we had prior to that, um, it was something that had happened several times. Um, and and, the, and the, 
the three American athletes, which, which was myself and Evan Strong and Keith Gable, um, all had a really great season that year. I think we were all in good health. We were all competing really well um, and just really driving each other to another level. And so going into the games, we had a really good idea that this could be a possibility, but knew that it was going to be extremely hard because there was a lot of new talent that year, especially with the Paralympics being now a, a public thing and people realizing that that could be a goal of theirs. Uh, a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Um, but um, we had a we had a really good day that day, and we were we were able to bring back the medals for the U.S., which is a memory that I will long remember and always be trying to put on. Was it you guys against the world when you were competing? Did you or did you feel like you're competing against your teammates as well, or it was like we're gonna win? How, how what was your what was your mindset at that time? It it's an individual sport, but we the U.S. snowboard team always had at least at that time had a team mentality to it. Um, and I think we all legitimately believed that it didn't matter who got first, second, or third, as long as all of us got first, second, or third, or, or all of us did the best that we could at that time. Um, and so I, I didn't really care what the color of that medal was. You know, I just, I really wanted to be on top of that podium for myself and, and for, for my country. And so when it happened, you know, to me, silver was as good as a gold. What did your, what did your run feel like? Did you know when you finished your run that you're like, okay, I, I threw down here. This is, this is legit. Yeah. When you get into that space, I think uh, where you're competing a lot, you start to, you know, they call it the zone. And right. um, for me at the beginning of the day, usually after my first time trial, I know whether or not I'm in that zone. And um, I immediately knew after my first time trial that I kind of felt like I was in that, in that hit space. And so things sort of take place and muscle memory takes over and you don't really think about much from the beginning of the day until the end because that's the whole plan with preparation and training is to get to that point where you don't have to think too much and so I, I knew that had I just done what my body would let me to do that I was going to be on top of that podium somewhere um, I just didn't know where it was going to be and I kind of just sort of let the day take its course and uh, let my training and everything sort of play out which is it's a really beautiful thing and that does happen because um, that's, that's what any athlete wants is for, for things to just kind of go that way. And it doesn't always happen that way, but it did that day for sure. Well, that's, that's, I mean, yeah, you're, you're not giving yourself much credit because that is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, you can be as prepared as you want to be and, and everything's perfect, but you go to a big event and suddenly everything becomes different. The things that you were doing before mm -hmm feel weird or whatever and your mind wants to get more involved in it and be like hey hey i know i know i've taught you know you've learned all this stuff but i need to be involved in so is there anything that you do to help you get to that place where you go okay i'm letting this happen i know that i'm in the right place uh, or or you know or or yeah any any strategies that you might be able to give anybody well you know when I look back on it, if there's any one particular thing that I did, you know, I was big. I was always big on goal setting. Um, and we were always told to set small, attainable goals um, and to work things, you know, at, at very slow paces because you never really see large jumps or, or um, increases in performance. And if you do, then something was off or whatever. As, as a high-performance athlete, you see very small increases in the amount of performance that you have. And that's done through setting daily goals uh, and reminders for yourself. And journaling was a big part of that for me. And so after World Cups or during training days, writing a lot of that stuff down and saying, what do I want to accomplish tomorrow? 
and, and not not the day after that, but what do I just want to accomplish tomorrow? And, and things that are um, not necessarily result driven um, are was a big part of that for me because if you say, oh, I want to win a gold medal on this event or I want a time better than this, if that doesn't work out for you, then you're setting yourself up um, to be to, for failure. And so you have to not set your goals uh, on on the results itself. It's more about the process. And I think once I really learned how to do that. Um, the years leading up to Sochi sort of just kind of all came came together, and I know it sounds sounds like it's it, it's really simple, and it was a lot more so I think in the preparation that was really important to me than anything else. Well, and also what it sounds like is that you believed in the process, and you believed in the people who are around you. You had this coach who was so influential, the coach who's who's having you journal, and and also it sounds like with your teammates as well that you had. You had these teammates where you guys you guys grew from from nothing into something, and so I'd imagine it's almost a feeling of like destiny that you think, okay, well we've we've done the whole thing and we know what's going on, and just like just get out of the way and make it happen. You've taken a step now in retirement into working as more of a mentor and and as a coach, you've been coaching some baseball. I mean, granted, things are a little bit crazy right now with with COVID and what are kids allowed to do? What is anybody allowed to do? But why, why be a mentor and what do you have to share with the, with the, with the athletes, with the kids, with whoever you're mentoring? Yeah, I think for so many years, I did a lot of what I did for myself because it was important for me at that time for me to do things for myself. Um, And as years sort of went on, I realized that, I got more gratification out of doing things for other people than I ever did doing things for myself. And that's truly what, what made me happy. And so as years went on and, and that selfish part of me started to kind of go away and I competed in South Korea, which was my second games and ultimately my last games and not doing well there uh, was sort of a hard hit as well, but it was also sort of coming to terms with the fact that you can't do this forever. And that I do have a place in this world still to make an impact on people with the experiences that I've had in my lifetime. And that whether that's through sharing stories of addiction, uh, overcoming my amputation, or sharing the knowledge that I've had in high performance sports, um, then I'm up for any of that. And being able to use Born Revolution as a platform to be able to do that with with kids and, and schools and stuff and seeing the impact that it has on their lives, you know, to get a Paralympian to come to their school, a lot of them just love that. And then to be able to get some information from, from you know, me, someone that has gone through tough times in their lives, um, it, it really kind of helps them set them up to uh, learn how to fail forward. Do you, do you think that you are more impactful as a result of having had difficulties in your life? 100%. Uh, without those experiences, I don't think that I really have any, any basis uh, to speak on um, some of the things that I speak on. And I think that that's in, in true for most, in most cases is when you experience certain things in your life, that's really what gives you the confidence and wisdom to share that with other people. The difficulty, because even if you just, even if you had the success and everything, you know, you were successful all the way along and, and hadn't, hadn't experienced any of those difficulties, you think you wouldn't have much, you wouldn't have that much to talk about or that much to teach. Probably not. Just not as much substance there. You know, I think the lessons that you lose, that you that you gain in the difficulties uh, are really what what helps people. 
um, for their successes. And so I think it's a lot, a lot of it's correlated. And, and for me, at least for me, it was, and that's part of what I, what I teach as well. What do you find that you're teaching them? Is it the mental side? Is it the physical side? Is it being compassionate and just being there for them? Or what's the, what is it? And, and did you have, you know, do you have a model that you go on as far as a mentor? Yeah, I think for me, it's always been a lot more on the mental side. I've always been really intrigued by that. I'm interested in how um, your mental state can really affect the things around you. It can affect your body, your physical well-being. It can affect the people around you and how they feel. And so that, going through that a little bit with my amputation, a little bit of that with my addiction, and especially with, with sport, you really realize how your mental state is a huge influence on your life and other people around, people around you. And so I like to be able to, when I speak to kids, to help them understand that failure isn't going to be inevitable, especially with young kids. Um, at some point in their life, they're going to be failing at something. It's sort of just something that we have to deal with. And we're a or lot of all people. The time. Are, yeah. All the, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, to some extent, even if it's just minor failures regularly, sure. um, we have taught our kids put more, um, I think, uh, pressure on them to succeed and not really teaching them how to fail. And so I think that's a, an important part for me is through my experiences to share that with them so that they can understand it's okay to fail, that it's probably gonna happen, and what tools can I use in order for me to overcome this? And if I can help one or two students out of thousands or whatever it may be, then to me that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. And a motto that I had always gone by, and my coach helped me with the same coach that helped me journal, uh, said to go home and write in a journal, uh, sort of a motto, something that you live by. And I'd come up with uh, pace. And pace is passion, because passion, I believe, is one of the most important things in life. It's what helps us when we wake up in the morning. It's what makes us tick. It's what drives us to do the things that we do, whether it's with the things that we love or it's with the people that we love. Um, and so that was the first one. The second one, uh, A, was attitude. Because uh, I truly believe that the attitude that we have um, in our lives and towards the things that we go through directly reflects how uh, we get through things. You know, you get out as much as you put into it, and your attitude is a big part of that. Um, C was for commitment, because I truly believe that commitment is a big, big, big thing. Um, again, you get out as much as you put into it, and, and you put a lot of energy into something, you're going to get a lot. And the last thing was uh, I wanted to keep it simple and enjoyment is an important thing to me. And um, I think it's a really simple thing that's overlooked sometimes. And if you're not enjoying something, then why are you doing it? And uh, if there's a way for you to try and figure out different ways to enjoy something that you may not enjoy, it could help you. So those were all the things that I live by and things that I like to teach. It's funny how often we forget the enjoyment part about it, right? It's like, the simplest it's like, one. Oh, right? I'm just working hard. I'm trying to do it. And it's like, well, are you enjoying what you're doing? No, no, you can't enjoy it. This is supposed to be work. I'm supposed to grind it out. It's like you generally do better if you're actually enjoying it. Like it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a great way to be loose and fun and 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 yeah, and continue to push forward. So we've got we've got just a short little period of time now. But what? Where can people find your woodwork? Do you have a do you have a website? Can can people check it out and see what you're doing? So I was going to do a website and then I sort of just got overwhelmed with orders and um, people wanting cabinet work and never really had got around to doing that. But I have an Instagram page and it's altered at altered grain design, A-L-T-E-R-E-D grain, G-R-A-I-N design. 
Um, and most of my work and stuff is on there and you can follow along and I have updates regularly when I'm doing projects. Um, and then a lot of uh, requests for builds and stuff, you can just uh, either message me or email me. Cool. And you're doing all sorts of stuff, right? You're doing cabinets, you're doing desks, you're doing, I mean, what, what else are you doing? All, all sorts of stuff. A lot of uh, millwork. So people are doing shiplap and crown moldings, baseboards and stuff like that. Um, but I, I try to put myself in a box in terms of what kind of woodworking that I do. Cause when I cut, like we were talking about enjoyment, you know, I felt like sometimes if I did the same thing over and over again, I started losing a little bit of enjoyment in what I do. A way for me to keep enjoying that is to kind of change it up a little bit. So I'll do some millwork for a little while, and then somebody will want some cabinets, and I'll do cabinets. And then I just did a cutting board for somebody who lived in the, in the Bahamas recently, which was kind of fun because it changed it up a little bit. So I try and do all of it. Cool. Are you willing to to make a baseball bat for other people too, or is that a one-off? No, I, I actually do baseball. I haven't done one in a while, um, especially since since quarantine. But uh, yeah, I can build a baseball bat. I enjoy doing those. Those are fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, they can check it out. And and so it's altered grain. Uh, altered grain is altered your grain design. Yep. Altered grain design. Okay. Yep. Altered grain design. If people want to check it out, they can go check out your work and keep you busy and and uh, and moving forward. So, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us and talking us through your story. I'm sure that so many people, you know, can relate on some level to what you're doing. And I think the the biggest thing that came out of it for me is the idea of, of process that, that you have to have those process goals, but it's also, it's also the daily commitment to, to continuing to get better and continuing to be healthy. And that's something that's really easy for a lot of us to forget as we get through, Oh, it's not a great day today. I don't really want to be committed to this or that. And I'll pick it up again tomorrow. And, and, you know, your example puts us in a position where we have to remember that it really is that daily commitment to making it happen. So, uh, so thank you for joining us. Thank you to the audience for joining us. We'll be back again next week at uh, seven o'clock Eastern, five o'clock Mountain, four o'clock on the West Coast. And I hope that people will come join us. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Okay.